Here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Brussel. So this week we have Australian writer-director Justin Krizel, director of Macbeth, starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, Assassin's Creed, also starring Michael Fassbender. I like to say his name as if I'm German. Um, and <laughs> his latest film, True Story of the Kelly Gang, which hit VOD on April 24th, starring George McKay, Russell Crowe, Nick Holt, Charlie Hunnam, and Essie Davis. Like, working with Russell Crowe, like, if you're not happy with something that he's doing, like, are you able to give him that note? Or do you have to, like, like how do you manage that? Or is it all just gold and, and you don't even have that problem? I don't think you ever go up to Russell and go, that was shit, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, I don't think you'd ever, you know, and I've never, ever done that with any actor, you know, nor, nor should you because nothing is shit. But before we get to our interview with Justin, the The network. network. Oh, we did it the same time. (laughs) Um, So I was really excited about this week because a lot of shit went down. Um, (laughs) This first one is pretty quick. So there's an article um, that I read that it's on every website, but uh, the Oscars have made streaming movies eligible for 2020 or 2021. What what is it officially? What do what do you call it? Oh, I think it's 2021 because the Oscars are in January or February, right? They're like right. after the New Year. So we already had the 2020 Oscars, and the 2021 Oscars will be next year. Okay, that that makes sense. I think I'm down with that, but. Anyways, it's a done deal. It's happened. Um, and apparently it's only happening this year for sure. And then they'll reassess for next year. But um, I imagine this is only going to be a one-year thing. But I don't know. What do you think about this, Liz? Is this is like essential, right? Yeah, I feel like we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were like, there were just rumors about this. And yeah, we were thinking, yeah, rumors. like, this is, of course, of course this should happen. I mean, how only, like, five films would be eligible um, if, and plus a lot <laughs> right. of films that, like, vie for the Oscars come out right before, like, in that fall period, which we haven't even hit yet. And that will may likely be when the virus comes back around. I don't know. I know nothing. I'm a, I'm not a virologist. Uh, but point being, <laughs> yes, we have to have more and more films in contention and we have to identify, uh, we have to recognize the situation that we're in technology-wise and environment-wise. We can't go to the movies. So we have to consider streaming films. Yeah, and what I'm really curious to see is like, will movies that never were going to have much of a VOD or a, much of a theatrical run and like, only going to be VOD movies, are they going to have a chance now? Like, are other movies that weren't... No. Tra- no. You don't think so. <laughs> so, like, a movie that, like, has a lower no. budget, wouldn't <laughs> afford a theatrical, we're not going to see them in the Oscars. No. Saying. I mean, I'm... As I've discovered through listening to this podcast and hearing myself, I'm a pessimist. I've, I've identified myself <laughs> as a pessimist now. I know who I am. And uh, I just think indie filmmakers get screwed over Uh, over again and there's no scenario that benefits us so if you're pointing to like you know larger budget indies that wouldn't necessarily do a robust theatrical but may have a strong digital release no i think we'll still still not be considered and still never win our oscars until we're in our 50s and 60s and 70s and like do movies about dying people 
So what do you think it is that makes a movie, like if you're taking that equation out and it's like, oh no, those movies that didn't get theatricals aren't going to have a chance. What is it like name talent, big budget. And then is it like, you know, they have to be like in the, in the know, like in like movies that were already going to be Oscar contenders because of the people who made them kind of thing. I think so. I look back at when I was a critic and I voted for um, just the Critics' Choice Awards. So this was just like one subset of these awards uh, that films are in contention for. And I remember the amount of packages I received every day that were just sheer bribery and just reflected <laughs> the amount, like the budget level of the films that wanted to buy for these awards. You know, I remember I got like cupcakes that spelled out the word cake for the movie cake with jennifer aniston like sure it's like you know i don't know ten dollars to make these cupcakes and send them to me but uh you know that's a lot of people that they're sending cupcakes to so i think the same kind of stunts are going to happen for the oscars if they're allowed i don't know i'm not a dga member i'm not in the academy so i don't know like what the stipulations are but i think the budgets for marketing are going to go to other things in order to garner attention uh, from the voters. Well, when you received these cupcakes for <laughs> cake, did you then think, oh, golly, like I better write a great review for this movie? <laughs> or did you just eat the cupcakes and then say oh. this movie sucks or whatever it was going to be? I mean, I liked that movie and I think I'd already <laughs> reviewed it by the time uh, <laughs> I got the cupcakes and they were delicious. I still remember right. them. But I remember being a critic and not people, uh, critics wouldn't admit this and I would say for sure not all critics do this but there are critics who will be extra enthusiastic about a film in order to garner uh, pull quotes for like a poster or a trailer and to uh, like amplify their profile and so uh, there is kind of this exchange of scratch your back I'll scratch yours in this world of film criticism which seemed like such a nerdy world yeah. to be like that so I personally feel um the same films are going to be in contention but what do you think do you think we have a chance you're the optimist give us your I, optimist response I, I don't really know i guess i i'm so disconnected from the oscar race and who is eligible and who is not and like what makes your movie one that people want to actually vote for because like you know there's lots of great movies that i thought like should have definitely had oscar contention you know uh and i guess i feel like we're just seeing it's like genre movies seem to be often ignored until like get out got a little bit of love when when that movie came out but like there was this movie the babadook which i thought was like an <gasps> I excellent love film the babadook and, and beyond just a great horror movie but just like a great movie that yes. like made me cry too and i was like oh my gosh like this has to have like some kind of oscar attention like even if it's just best foreign film or something you know and then nothing of course and yeah well as a woman director like, so <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> guess guess that's part of it but yeah it just i don't know so i mean i would just love to see movies like you know just smaller movies that are great uh that uh, aren't like you know have these huge budgets behind them or huge uh cast behind them get love you know um yeah but yeah, I don't know. It's just it's hard. It's hard to say what's going to actually happen, um, and it's also hard for me to know like what qualifies for that movie or not. Like you know, we had uh, the filmmaker um, for the other Lamb on earlier this year, and that was a really great movie and a tough ass movie, but like a great movie. I have no understanding 
of if that would have been an Oscar movie, you know, regularly, or if it is not even have it doesn't have even have a chance, you know, because mm-hmm. of the size of it, because it's got fancy American producers. It's got uh, a lead who is has been in things, you know, and a, like world renowned director. So I don't know. Is that movie in the talk or no? I mean, and what makes that movie in the talk or not? Is it just the reviews? Is it everything? Like, is it the numbers? Like, I, I don't I don't get it. I think it's money. Unfortunately, but I I agree. I don't I can't connect all the dots of where all that money is spent. I mean, I just think back on something like the Independent Spirit Awards, which really reflects a support of more indie themed content, right? And indie budget levels. And I would say a lot of films that I thought were really stellar films weren't in consideration for the Independent Spirit Awards either. So it's it's hard to get. I think I still, whatever, this is a very paranoid perspective, but I still think there's some club. It's not, there's no, you know, there's no house to the club. It's not a clubhouse. Like you can't actually go in, but I still think there's a level of name recognition and budget level and notoriety you have to achieve until you're really considered and on these lists. And so I just think maybe, I hope Mel Grisada wins everything, but of course, if not, sh- sh- it'll come in the future for her. All right. Well, now onto the main articles this week that I just were, was completely in love with. But uh, so um, this huge thing happened where Universal announced that uh, their movie Trolls World Tour is tracking to make more money for the studio on VOD than the original did uh, in theaters uh, through its theatrical. And it's not it's really kind of complicated. The numbers, it's not like simply, oh, the VOD numbers were bigger than the theatrical numbers, but it's more like the amount of VOD numbers that they had and the fact that they get more of that money and they don't have to split it with the theaters makes it that it's more profitable or it's going to be more profitable than the other movie is. So they made some statement and some like, you know, announcement of this. And then they said that they'll be doing more uh, VOD straight or premium VOD, I think is what they called it, straight releases in the future. And then, yeah, AMC banned Universal (laughs) movies from their theaters uh, indefinitely. Um, So juicy. Which was hilarious. Um, But, I mean, did you read about this? Were you following along as this stuff was happening? Yeah, I love it. I love it so much uh, because I think that the world of distribution and marketing is very cold. And when it comes, like, when there's, like, a weird, like, spat between two entities I just eat it up because it's like drama it's so (laughs) exciting yeah I mean I don't blame AMC actually because I think yes AMC is a massive chain but often I feel for my art house exhibitors and I want them to make money because I think as independent filmmakers we love the theatrical experience and there's a lot of people in exhibition theatrical expedition expedition who just really care about independent film i mean yeah. amc's not that you know and um Reg- i mean amc actually has an independent theatrical program where they allow yeah. you know films like ours to have a chance so I, they're trying and regal i would say is <laughs> you know also very very large i i understand the perspective of amc and regal and i get it but i also think that you know they're being a little bit a little bit like dramatic right now they they, they came out a little hot i mean it does this whole banning thing is a good idea i I guess i suppose but it doesn't work if not every chain does it like every chain has to do it because if amc bans a universal movie i'll just go to regal and see the universal movie or one of the other major theater chains and and amc isn't even in every market so that's like another reason why it's kind of like silly you know um but uh but then this other thing happened a couple days later where the regal cinemas company kind of like made their own statement 
And they didn't, like, do the same thing that AMC did, but they basically just said that, like, they would ban any studio that didn't honor the windows of uh, release that they have agreed upon, you know? Yeah. So it's, like, a similar thing, but, like, a more, like, you know, I think rational calculated sort of, (laughs) you know, statement. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I don't really know how they define Windows or like, I'm sure there's a way that Universal or any studio could be like, well, this movie isn't going to be a theatrical within that theatrical window. It's going to be a VOD only release, you know, and will they be okay with that? Like, who knows? I don't know. I kind of think like this is a little crazy because we've got Netflix, we've got Amazon. Well, this is where I'm of two minds, because I think that as a filmmaker, we should be able to to decide how we want to release our films. Right. But then when it comes to these massive studios and these massive theatrical chains, they really will impact the film economy with their decisions. So, like, I get that it's very scary and tenuous for Regal and for Universal. But, like, at a really base level for us, I'd be so angry if someone were like, you can't release the film the way you want to release it. Like, the the rights owner. I'm now coming back around and I'm like, wait a second. They can't tell me what to do do it's my movie well i just think it's really hard to like decide like you know what what is uh because they because i'm sure universal studios just like pretty much every studio has an arm within them that releases direct to vod movies that don't get theatrical releases Right, right? right so at what point do you say like oh it can't be a vod it has to be a theatrical or we're gonna ban you is it budget level? Is it like, you know, what your original decision with that product was in the beginning? Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's gonna be hard, I think, for people to like identify when a studio is like doing this sort of thing and like not releasing a movie in theaters like they normally would, you know, because there's, there's a cut gray area, right? Well, yeah, and also I think um, it's just tough, especially for family films. Those are such money makers for studios. Oh, yeah. We, um, Sean and I, my partner and I, were talking about this with our friends the other night, and Sean was mentioning that, like, with VOD rentals or purchases, it's a household. It's a per household cost. Um, right. My child dropping a pot outside of her door. <laughs> it's per household, Aww. so that is like a one-time fee versus you know eighteen dollar tickets at Regal or you you know a AMC City Walk right. or whatever, plus concessions, which is where they really make the money, which is, you know, and all these other parking, maybe they get a cut of that. I don't know. It's family films that I think may be the target here. I mean, trolls would, would make them a lot of money in the theaters. It's interesting. If you do the VOD rental for five ninety nine, you have that option or going to the theater for like a day release movie. You save so much money by just doing the, the rental because two of you for five ninety nine versus... You know, two of you for whatever, probably like 50 bucks in the end, you know? So (laughs) to me, it's like, I love movie theaters so much that I will always pick the movie theater over the VOD situation if I can, because it's just so much better. And that's like how the movies are supposed to be seen anyway. So again, I stick by what I said a long time ago when this all started is that, you know, just because this is happening now it doesn't mean that movie theaters are going to go away. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to want to go to the movies as much just because we've been living in this VOD world for two months or whatever. I'm writing an article about this, actually, um, about the state of distribution in COVID-19 for Movie Maker. It's going to be, like, as part of their summer issue. And I started looking up, like, are movies still being released? And it's like, Tenet is still slated. By the way, Sean's working on Tenet. It's still slated to release in mid-July. Um, and then so, and then there's like a purge movie that's still slated to release in the summer. And then wonder woman is still slated to release in August. So it's, they are planning on it. 
Yeah, Christopher Nolan is not going to let go of the theater until he like, has no other choice. Yeah. You know, I think he'd probably rather delay the movie, you know, uh, a couple more months or whatever, than not have it released in, yeah. in theaters. Because he's such a theater freak, um, which is great. And we should have Sean on the show to talk about working on Tenet. Cause <gasps> I'm sure there's a lot of great things um, that he's learned on this process maybe he'll listen then because he doesn't listen to the show oh really yeah don't worry my partner doesn't listen either (laughs) um and it's been five years so you know i'm used to it it's fine um (laughs) i think this is really fascinating and i just can't wait to see what happens next um but yeah i really hope that i can see wonder woman in the theaters and tenant in the theaters uh later this summer that would make me very very happy yes so liz uh you've got mail i do well, not really. Um, <laughs> but what you do have is some new iTunes reviews, and so I figured we'd read those. These are brand new, fresh, fresh as fresh can be iTunes reviews. Kifarama gave us five stars and said, so good on April 21st. And Kifarama said, this podcast already was great and just keeps getting better, even in these tough times. Not just for all the superb advice and impressively non-boring shop talk, but also for the general spirit lift one gets from lively conversations full of honesty and humor and warmth. Clearly useful to film folks at all levels and from all backgrounds. It reminds us of the value of independent storytelling and offers a real sense of community. That's very sweet, Kifa Rama. <laughs> so do you know who this is? I mean, my friend's, my friend's name is Jonathan Kiefer. So I just feel oh, like it's got to be Jonathan. Yes. Jonathan yeah. Kiefer, who also is very sweet and uh, comments on Facebook and such yeah. and says nice things to us. So thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. Also, I believe supported my film, The Alternate. Thank you, Jonathan. Aww. Very sweet of you to do that. And uh, here's the next one. So good. Five stars <laughs> by Walking Candy Apple, April 25th. Interesting guests and great advice. Love the new segments they've added in addition to the interview. And I think we both know this is Amy Taylor. Amy Taylor. Yeah, who's been on the show before. Thank you, Amy. And also thanks to Amy for being our newest patron (gasps) on Patreon. Thanks, Amy. You're the best. Amazing. Oh, we, we just read her script. She invited me to like a table read of her latest script. Oh, wow. And it was done over Google Hangouts. So we all, it was like, Eight of her friends doing a table read over Google Hangouts. You got to hear it and comment. It was really, really cool. It's going to be a really good project. Talking about Patreon leads directly (laughs) into our next segment, The Call. We do have a Patreon page. Uh, It is www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can uh, be like Amy Taylor, who uh, gave us a buck a month, which would be amazing. And uh, we would uh, really appreciate that. And uh, we do have merch on the way. Merch yes. is on the way. Yes. It's going to be ready in late May. <laughs> and then Yay. we have to figure out how to ship it to anyone who's interested, but it's going to be good. Do you want to talk about how many items we have? Like how many how many exclusive uh, things we have and like what they are? Is it 50 or 100? It's a limited number of items. Ooh, wow. <laughs> so pretty much all our patrons will get one. And then pretty much if we get 50 patrons, then they'll all get one. But at what dollar level are we going to release these things? At? A million dollars. <laughs> okay. So the first 50 people to donate a million dollars a month to the podcast will get one of these uh, enamel pins. Are we allowed to say yes, what they they're, are? They're badass enamel pins and they're from the logo designed by Lucas Culshaw and they look really great and they're from Wizard Pins and I've, I'm very excited. 
Oh, awesome. Well, I can't wait to, to see these things. And uh, when we get them, we'll put a picture of it on the, the Patreon page and we'll uh, make a new tier. So people who are at that tier, whatever it is, a million dollars, two million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Uh, then you'll be able to get one of these enamel pins. Yeah, maybe um, twenty. I don't know. <laughs> maybe just twenty dollars. While while, uh, while supplies last, guys. Yes. While supplies last. If you want to be like Kiferama and Walking Candy Apple, you can go to iTunes and leave us an iTunes review, and that would be really great for the show. Even just a rating would be great. We're we're climbing. We're slowly getting up there. I want to get to two hundred ratings or reviews. I think that would be a really nice number. We're at like one thirty nine right now. Oh. Um. So people help us. Um. If you don't have words to say, you could always just click and leave uh, a star rating. Those are always great, too. And even yet, better yet, uh, if you're a brand new, spanking new listener, you've like just started listening, maybe you only have heard the new episodes with this new format, we would love to hear from you especially. Like, What do you think of this craziness? Do you like it? Are you going to go back to episode one and listen to <laughs> this from the beginning? How do, what do you think? You know, um, And be honest. As long as you leave a five-star review. <laughs> four or five. Four. Let's, four or five. let's be four. open to Okay, four. okay, okay. We're not perfect. There's room for improvement. You can also leave reviews and ratings for all on all the places. Spotify, Stitcher, I believe we're still at. I think we're at a lot more places now. I don't really know all the places, but I think we're, we're at places. So wherever you see us, rate us. That'd be great. But Liz, I'm really excited about this next segment. Soap Dish. Are you familiar with this movie? I actually am... I, I truly love this movie. Yeah. Truly. I just saw it for the first time what? on Friday. What? I thought it was fantastic. My my partner loved it. She's yes. like loved it since she was a kid. Yes. And so she was she kind of like you, like surprised I hadn't seen it. And uh, I kind of thought it's perfect for this segment because they're all about ratings and trying to like, you know, make the show good. And like, you know, they have a, a little bit of distribution in their show too, you know. And I know it's a silly movie, but I felt like that was a good one. Or Tootsie was the other option. I was like, Tootsie could be because, you know. <laughs> also in that same world but i think soap dish i think we should just go with soap dish yeah also because we're dishing a little bit right we are dishing yeah and also Perfect. it's just such a good movie i remember i saw soap dish recently rewatched it and i was like if i ever make a movie half as good as soap dish like i'll be okay it, it's so bonkers and fun and creates its own reality and it really does a great job of being a movie within a movie within a movie kind of thing um which is just wonderful well, you know, I talked to earlier and I said I was re-listening to some episodes or listening for the first time. <laughs> <for some laughs> right, right. And I was listening to the Andrew Schrader episode and we had a little section where we're talking about COVID-19 and how that's going to impact independent filmmakers and VOD numbers. Anyway, I talked to an indie distributor on Friday and he said streaming is up like two times what it was wow. for him and his company. Nice. So I was wrong. In that episode with Andrew Schrader, <laughs> I was like, I don't know, do people have time to watch things when the world is falling apart? I got real emotional. And <laughs> and you were like, yeah, we are stuck inside and people are going to watch movies. And so you were right. I was wrong. People are watching content like gangbusters and they're even watching yeah. library titles. So not just watching new things. The guy I was talking to was saying his two titles that were getting the most amount of traction were library titles, which just means like older, non-new releases. Yeah. And yeah. they were both from like 10 years ago. 
So there's hope. There's hope for us right now. Well, well I just watched Soap Dish. So like, what, what is that? That's a library <laughs> title if there ever was one, you know? You're right. And I feel like you're seeing a lot of these movies from the early 90s, uh, late 80s pop up on streaming platforms in the last couple uh, weeks or months or whatever, you know, like Netflix has a bunch that were just added. Amazon, like Soap Dish was one that was added on Amazon recently, you know? And so I think these titles getting added is a sign of uh, these companies realizing that they need to feed the beast, the beast being us as uh, consumers, you know? So, well, yeah, so I've learned that streaming is up, but actually it doesn't mean the revenue translates to more and more money for independent filmmakers. When it comes to certain deals, like, so Amazon, their per streaming I'm going to mess this up because I don't fully understand it quite yet, but there's essentially a per streaming rate that's uh, based off of like whatever they, an algorithm that they have in house. So you don't know going in when you release content on Amazon Prime, like through Amazon Video Direct. Amazon Video Direct is just the way to upload things onto Amazon Prime and Amazon Video. And so it means that like anyone could do it as long as the film passes QC. So let's say you upload your film on Amazon Prime and tons of people are watching it, unless it hits this algorithm, Amazon has the right to lower the per stream rate for your film to like one cent an hour. Why? They are basing it off of some other, like I don't know if we have access to this data, but it's like all subjective. Like they can go into their algorithmic mathematical calculations and figure out that this is like a not often searched film or um, this is a genre, like whatever it is, there's different data points that contribute to what that specific per stream per hour amount is. And it's subjective. They get to decide what it is. They don't tell you up front. So this is what's happening to indie filmmakers is that right now streaming is up, but those per hour rates are being squeezed and Uh. um, yeah, are shifting without really us having any power. But that's just on things like Amazon Video Direct. There are alternates. So you can work with a distributor to get your film on like IMDb TV, uh, but not as many people are watching content there. So it's just kind of like you need to figure out where do you have the most amount of control. So yes, people are watching content. Your film may get seen more during this period, but you may not make more money. And so I think that's the problem with the situation Mm. right now. Interesting. Yeah, I I don't know. I just keep on hearing from my investors. Like I got an email last week. It's like, oh, how's the movie coming? Uh, You should finish it now so you can like sell it to Netflix or something. You know, like everyone is like really aware of what's going on and the need for content and I'm just getting pressure to finish this film and I still don't think it's going to be done before like August at yeah. the earliest maybe J- July so I might miss out on this maybe but no, um, you won't oh you don't think so that's what I asked this nameless distributor about I was like everyone's asking me about this content drought you know and I, and I was always saying no 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 nothing ever benefits indie filmmakers well he seems to think that it's not right now that's going to benefit indie filmmakers. It's like a few months down the line. It's like 2021 when Peacock has emerged. I think it's just emerging right now. And we have like Tubi and Jupiter and all, whatever, like 15 million different platforms. HBO Max. HBO Max and like CBS All Access. And they're all building up content libraries to rival Netflix. So it's not Netflix opening their doors. It's like everyone else gathering up titles to compete 
with Netflix. So they're calling this another streaming wars. This is just part of wow. the streaming wars. And so I would say it's not necessarily now you need to put out your film, though it's not the end of the world if you had it done right now and you were marketing it. It's It may be beneficial to you a few months down the line. Wow. Okay, cool. So it sounds like I'm in the perfect zone. Basically. I think so. I think you're doing great. Which is great because like I have another movie that I produced too that's also going to be done around the same time. So it's like I'll have two movies with my name on it that are like involved in this cycle. It's pretty good. Yeah. I uh, feel very lucky to be in this situation. Well you know? timed, sir. Yes, indeed. Any other thoughts or tidbits in this segment? I think just in general, I mean, this is the I was wrong segment, but I didn't talk about film funding <laughs> when we talked to Andrew Schrader. And, you know, nonprofits that are funneling out grants to filmmakers, they're still doing it. And I think I always had this fear that all of those would be pulled because of coronavirus and, uh, you know, the economy and all those things. But grant money is earmarked for that uh, fiscal year or that fiscal quarter or whatever it is. So all that money has already been allocated to be spent right now. So we don't need to worry too much about grants right now, but we may need to keep an eye out for how these nonprofits, how these film support organizations are going to fare what they're going through right now for next year. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about film funding larger than grants. Like if like people are willing to put money into movies right now, um, I haven't asked anyone since I'm making a movie, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, uh, you know, my hope is always that like the investors I'm working with now are going to love my movie so much that they're going to want to make my next movie. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that's still like so a little further down the line for me. And I was always been talking to my producer, Jeff, and hearing what he's working on. And like he had a few irons in the fire before this happened. And I think everything is just frozen for the for the moment on, you know, future production. But when this gets lifted, like, I don't know what it's going to look like. Are, are we just going to go right back into planning, making movies or is there going to be a little bit of a period of, you know, waiting? I, I, I don't know. I'm gonna really curious to see. Yeah. And any update on your film? Like, are, do you, are you closer to, to knowing a filming date or no. any developments this last week? <laughs> no. We, um, we made, we redid our lists for talent. So we're going out to different people, but we're sending out these like emails asking if, a talent is available for our dates and they're on no one's responding to them and then I talked to another casting director and he was getting bites so I think it may be because we're sag ultra low and that we're in that space but I mean this is part of this article that I'm writing for movie maker is like how and in something we've been talking about for weeks you and me Alric is like how can indies prepare for when we do get the green light and I'm still lost I have no idea because (laughs) <laughs> I think so much is based off of SAG and whatever SAG says is going to make or break the next few months of indie production. I right. Think. And has SAG made, they have made any statements yet about what they're, what they're going to oh, do. I haven't even looked, honestly, I haven't Googled <laughs> it. I don't, I, ignorance is bliss. I'm just going to pretend like they haven't issued a statement <laughs> okay. and that I just don't know yet. We'll, we'll try to research that for next week just yeah. so we don't completely sound like idiots. But if anyone knows, <laughs> email us and tell us so then we don't have to be idiots and we can know. Yeah. If you have a project that's casting right now or you're about to go with a project, like I'm I'm dying to talk to someone who's about oh, yeah. to go. Yeah. How did you do locations? Were they all secured beforehand? Did you just keep up the conversations with those people? Like, what does that look like? That's what I'm curious about. Um, so I think it's time to go on to the player. The player. 
we have some actually very thematically related. I found three filmmakers to talk about how they funded their films. These are projects that have already completed by now, but we have um, Amy Taylor, Walking Candy Apple fame. Oh, yay. Uh, we have Kelsey Maples, who produced uh, Lena, this short that um, I just directed. Oh, cool. Nice. And then we have Stephanie Davis. She's very nice and very vocal on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, Love Stephanie. Stephanie's tweets. So they all weigh in about how they funded their projects. This is Amy Taylor. I'm a writer and director. Uh, You're asking about fundraising this week. I funded two projects so far via Kickstarter, a web series and a feature. And both times it was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done. Um, I remember on the web series, I was constantly checking to see if there were any new pledges. Uh, And at (laughs) about 3 a.m. one night, I refreshed the page and someone had pledged $1,000, which was way more from one person than I had ever expected. So I was on this huge high, like I just got an adrenaline shot. Um, And then the next morning when I checked and there had been no more pledges because really why would someone be pledging to Kickstarter at three in the morning? That's pretty rare occurrence. But, you know, there were no more pledges and it was this huge crash and I was like, we're never going to make our goal. This has all been for naught. But it was like, well, you just got a thousand dollar pledge. So, you know, calm down. So we did end up making our goal both times. Um, Thanks mainly to friends and family. Kickstarting is definitely a a real roller coaster. Hi, I'm Kelsey Maples, producer and actor. And recently I was running a crowdfunding campaign for a short film along with the film's writer. And toward the end of our crowdfunding campaign, we decided to do something a little outrageous to get a few more followers and donors. Uh, So one Saturday, we strolled into Times Square with a couple of pie crusts and a bunch of whipped cream, and we each stood on a platform in the middle of Times Square while our friend live-streamed us on all of our crowdfunding social media platforms, and we each threw the pie crusts filled with whipped cream into the other's face. (laughs) Needless to say, it got quite the reaction, and we ended up hitting our green light goal. Hi guys, this is Stephanie Davis. I am a writer, director, and producer in narrative film, and I'm also getting ready to work on my first documentary. The way that I fund my projects is that I typically work extra gigs on my survival job, add on more, you know, reality show PA gigs, and more events in our area, some wine tastings, things like that to get some extra cash, put it in a separate account, and then whenever it gets to a certain amount, then I go ahead and make my film. I did that with Hot Mess in a Wedding Dress, and then we also did a Seed and Spark campaign to gain a little bit more funding. I figure, you know, in my case, I have to prove myself before I can get investors to start funding my projects. And thankfully, I have a bachelor's in finance, and so I do know a lot about staying on budget and keeping things on track. Uh, Thank you guys very much for everything that you do on your podcast, and have a great rest of your week. All right. Well, I'm really excited to uh, hear our conversation with Justin Grizel because this this was like, I mean, one of those interviews where I was just like, it just oozing goodness and oozing information. <laughs> and I was a little nervous to talk to this guy because, you know, he's sort of like where I wish I was as a director or where I wish I will be one day, you know, to have like like an indie hit that did really well. 
get your options to direct your next movie, end up working with Michael Fassbender, directing a video game adaptation. I mean, I'm going to be honest, like, oh my God, like that would be incredible. I would love to do that. Let me direct the next Resident Evil movie, please. Oh my gosh. And then, yeah, and then to go on from that and then that not be a good experience and then to go on and recover and then make this movie, which I really just think is incredible. You could just tell who he is as a filmmaker when you watch the movie and it's so well done and it's got such a perspective and it's super entertaining. It's just like a really good movie. Let's go to our talk with Justin Frizzell. We have with us today Justin Kurzel. Is that how you say your last name? That's right, yep. Awesome. And uh, he just uh, directed the feature film True History of the Kelly Gang, which I saw this morning and was awesome. And we do this thing on the show, Justin, where we just do a rapid-fire round of questionings just to get the like the basic details of the film out to the audience. So I'm going to go first. Um, how many days did you shoot? 28. If you could talk about it, what was the rough budget? Small. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, small. It was about it was about sort of 10, 11 million type thing. How long did you work on it from the inception of the project to it being released? About eight years. Wow, eight years. How many people were on set, crew and cast included? Probably about 60. And then out of all your projects, how difficult was this one? Well, they're all difficult. They're all, they've all got their own DNA. Um, and, and, this, and this one was sort of difficult for many different reasons from Assassin's Creed to Snowtown to Macbeth. So they're all hard. Yeah, well, we can relate to that, even on a small scale. So I saw the movie. Liz hasn't seen it yet. Um, that's this is my of... shtick, Justin, is I don't watch the movies. I'm the asshole. And Ulrich is the good guy who <laughs> watches the films. The thing that really struck me about this film, every movie that I've seen like recently, and I can't even remember the last time I saw a movie that actually told the story in chronological order, especially one on such a grand scale as this film. So I'm just curious, like, was that always like the, the, the decision or that come into editing? Like, how did you come to this approach for the film? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much governed by the book. The book's really chronological in in regards to kind of starting off as Ned Kelly as a as a boy and sort of seeing all those influences in his life and the sort of mentors, good and bad. And the film to to Sean and I, the writer, was always about sort of the evolution of a boy to man to then sort of the ironclad monitor at the end. Which you know, there was a stage where we were calling him Monster, uh, kind of at the end, and um, it was sort of to see how you know the, this this kid is can't sort of outrun his destiny and fate of becoming a kind of Kelly and becoming kind of what he becomes at the end. And, uh, you know, no matter how much he kind of tries to kind of turn or shift or, or, or find a way out, he's always going to sort of end up, you know, being what he's, what he is at the end. So that, that, that would become a very conscious decision in, in regards to the structure and, you know, and even in the chapter headings through, throughout the three different stages uh, of his life. And because I'm the asshole who hasn't watched the movie, can you tell me a little bit about your attraction to the subject material? I mean, is this something that you were the origin of, or were you brought on to this project and, you know, willingly uh, jumped in? Yeah, I was brought on, I was shared, I was asked to do it sort of in 2012. So just after I'd finished my first film and I was at the London Film Festival with it and uh, yeah, a producer approached me. I, di I didn't think the book was available because Neil Jordan was going to make it and then Gregor Jordan made his version of Ned Kelly. So <clears throat> it didn't, it never got made with Neil Jordan. I'm sure he would have done an amazing job, but we got, how Vogel, the producer got the rights to it um, around then. 
And uh, it just sort of, I, I, I just, I, I, I wanted to make it, but I was really sort of scared of it. Like, you know, making a Nick Kelly film in a, Australia is a bit of a poison chalice. It's, there's been a lot of films made about him. Everyone has an opinion about him. He's an incredibly known character in Australia. So you kind of know that you're on a hiding to hell a little bit with it. And, and that probably kind of turned me off it a little bit. And then after finishing Assassin's Creed, and having spent six sort of six years in London, I, I, I just was really homesick and somehow picked the book up again and uh, just understood it for the first time in a way I hadn't before in regards to, you know, the idea of someone's history being stolen and, and, and this character desperately trying to kind of write his own history before he dies to his unborn daughter and the book kind of pokes and prods at why we are wanting myths and legends, why we turn people's history into whatever we want it to be. And, uh, and, and that felt really fresh and really current too. And, and, uh, that was sort of it. I was sort of hooked on it then and, um, thought, yeah, I want to get back to Australia and really sort of delve into a sort of world that I sort of feel familiar with and feel, feel excited by. So I have one more question about the editing of the film. Like, did you ever get any pushback or suggestions from anybody on the team or any notes that said, oh, you should like start with a shot of George McKay as an adult and then we'll jump into the past. Did that ever come up? Or was it always like, no, everyone's on the same page. We're doing it like the book. No, I mean, you, you do. You, like when you get into an edit, you, you start flipping things and changing things kind of constantly. And, and, and sometimes it goes really against what the original idea and kind of thought was, but I think chronologically we always sort of thought it would evolve like it does. So, um, yeah, that, that was, that was, um, that was sort of really important to us. Ulrich has told me that the lead is half naked, uh, in the cold for the majority of the film. And so I would like to hear you talk about that. Like, uh, Ned Kelly's, he's always got his shirt off. He's got lots of scenes where he's like, you know, out in the cold, um, you know, with not many, many clothes on. And I just worked on a project where we had issues with, uh, actors in the cold at night in the snow. And so I was just wondering, like, how did you deal with that? Well, we always wanted to kind of make Ned really physical and, and, kind of as he was sort of getting closer and closer to becoming an ironclad monitor that he almost kind of didn't feel the cold anymore you know, and, and that he was sort of desensitized to, to, to weather and to things around him and, and was sort of almost kind of becoming quite frenzied. That was just a sort of trait and something sort of interesting that George had picked up on too in regards to when you're high on adrenaline and focus and stuff that you sort of don't feel the conditions of, of weather, that your body kind of almost creates its own sort of thermal energy. So... That, that, that was sort of just something we kind of discussed and thought it added to the image of his sort of fever and madness um, that he was sort of heading towards and focus, I guess. You know, a lot, of the, a lot of the pictures of 1870s Australia, you know, it was a pretty full-on time in terms of sort of the, the labour that was sort of going on. Like, you know, these guys were like huge, you know, in, in terms of their muscles. They were felling trees. They were you know, doing massive hard labor. So there was every photo that we saw of any guy with his sort of top off was this, it looked like he was sort of part of the USC, you know, it was sort of this sinewy, incredible kind of bull. And, and you do suddenly realize, wow, most of the labor was really, really physical and hard and, and the diet would have been really simple. Um, so that, that, that kind of, that was, there was a bit of inspiration there for in, in regards to kind of how, you know, George kind of got that physique in the end. 
That's such a thoughtful answer to my objectifying question. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Justin. Was George just okay being cold all the time? Or did you guys have like heaters and blankets like right off frame to keep them warm? Like, or was it actually warm when you were shooting? Like, how did that happen? No, he, he had blankets and I mean, he was, ama- he was amazing. I mean, I, the reason I worked with him is because I just saw someone who desperately wanted to act and desperately wanted to try something new and test themselves and put themselves into really challenging situations. So there are many actors I'd be able to do that with. Most, I think, would turn around and say, you know, f*** off. Um, right. <laughs> George, George, I just knew wouldn't. And, and that's really inspiring. It's just so inspiring being around someone who's just wanting to put everything into something, you know, body and soul. And, um, you know, that, that was a huge reason I, I cast him cause I, cause I knew he would. Yeah. And I mean, it really comes off in the film too. It's pretty amazing. Like the transformation that he goes through just as the character changes and just from, you know, like just the performance, it's really, it was striking. I was going to talk about, um, this, this bigger question about like your cast is incredible first off and like you know just assembling all those actors together for one project especially on a low budget must have been pretty challenging can can you talk about how you got all those actors to be in the film yeah i was really lucky i mean i'm i'm, I'm sort of you know a lot of those roles too were, were were support roles um that um you know actors like charlie and nick and and russell kind of did so it was really it, it was the work really it was that they read the script and they really loved it and 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 i think there was something exciting in that they were kind of going in and out of a film it didn't have to rest on their shoulders that they had you know and, and sometimes those support characters are really fun you know so they're either really wicked or dangerous or funny or you know and and i think that that the the actors got a real sort of hoot out of sort of playing something that they wouldn't normally play. And and Russell was someone who was with the project for a very, very long time and was very loyal to it. And we always saw him as Harry and, you know, it was a long gestation in regards to kind of seducing him to kind of do the role. But um, he, he was he was pretty uh, all-encompassing, pretty sort of devoted to it, which was, you know, very exciting for us. You mentioned that you thought the budget was small and then I heard the number and I was like, oh, wow, that's a that's a large number. But it's a period piece and you're dealing with very high profile actors. What were the major constraints of this budget? Well, yeah, it's really hard doing period uh, on a budget of that level. And, 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 you know, with the scope that you've got, you've got an enormous amount of cast that's, you know, told over three separate time periods. You're in really formidable landscape, especially shooting in snow. Um, you know, it's really hard to do kind of large extras scenes with a sort of budget like that. So, you know, and this is Australian money too. It's not US. So it's 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 lower than even that. So, you know, and then you've got to find a way to pay all that cast. And so it goes pretty quickly. And, you know, it, it, it needed a little bit of scope and scale to it as well to sort of allow you to sort of understand the, 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 the context and the environment of it. So... That all that all means that you've got to be really clever about you know what you film and how you film it and and um, you, you know and you're doing it on a shoestring so you know it's 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 tough for everyone most of the, I always find that pre-production is always the toughest time and you're killing your babies and you're trying to adjust and the film really becomes something completely different um, you know through pre well I've always found I don't know maybe it just happens with me but um, it's uh, yeah it does change. 
Can you talk about like some things that you had to scale back on due to budget that you originally had planned to be different in the film? Or were you able to like actually utilize that budget and get everything that you wanted on, on screen? Uh, it just changed. You know, there were, there were like big sort of town scenes and, you know, at, at the end at Glen Rowan when the police come, you know, you you know, the, the train comes right up to Glen Rowan. You see, you know, many, many policemen get off in full period costume and so forth. Well, you can't do that. You know, you don't have the days to shoot it and you don't have the money to clothe them and, you you know, you can't get a train. So you you, you then sort of start to think, well, how do you solve that? And, and, and a lot of your answers really, for me, come through point of view. You know, how do you, okay, well, then what does Ned see? You know, and what is Ned's kind of aperture? And, and let's sort of film to that. And I, I had a similar thing on Macbeth when I did that with, with, with Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard that, that, you know, at the end of that film, 10,000 British soldiers kind of approach Macbeth and he says, and 10,000 soldiers are in front of me. And, you know, we had the budget to do 10, you know, so you, you end up trying to find ways in which you find scale and ambition and, and really use point of view as a, as a way of dealing with some of those kind of budget restraints, because it's, you know, I wasn't in a position where I'm sort of in Braveheart territory where you can get a whole army to come down and 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 be that opposition. You've got to got to find other ways in which to kind of uh, you know create what the what it is that your lead character is kind of seeing. The whole strobe lighting effect thing that you did throughout the film, and then the way that you did shoot that um, the ending of the film with the light, and then those I don't even know what you call it like fluorescent white cloaks or whatever. Um, can you talk about how you came up with that and like how you were able to pull that off? Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, as we sort of felt the film was becoming more impressionistic through, you know, us sort of closing down the aperture and literally sort of seeing what Ned was seeing in Glen Rowan. I mean, we actually put the camera through the helmet uh, that he wears as he's sort of shooting all the police that it was much more interesting to us to sort of go, okay, so what does Ned feel? What's Ned, what's Ned's sort of fever dream here? And, um, you know, we, the, the Australian landscape's pretty electric, you know, when you're out in the middle of that, the, the bush, the stars really do look like they've been plugged into a kind of power cord, you know, it's pretty, it, it's sort of buzzing. So we, we, we got quite inspired by the idea that it felt much more strobed and electric and, um, somehow that sort of kind of gave you the sense of maticness and energy of what sort of Ned was feeling and um, as opposed to just sort of endless shops of police firing back at him. And, you know, that became a, a, a kind of point of view choice but also become a kind of stylistic choice as well. So, Justin, you sound like really confident and you're clearly very talented and you've had this illustrious career. So I want to just dig in a little bit. Do you feel like you've made it? Do you feel like you've achieved a certain level of fame and notoriety that's going to make the rest of your career less painful, less 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 of a hustle? I mean, like, and if you feel that way, when did you start feeling that way? No, I don't feel that way at all. I think it. I, I never have felt that way. I still don't. I still think the last film I made will be my last. Um, I think it's a very precarious industry that we're in. You know, it's not like you studied to be a doctor and you're, you know, you're, you're a doctor, you know, and there's work and there's kind of like this really, your career in film, it really comes from your own 
dogmaticness and kind of a obsession about it and 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 luck and you know the success of what you've done last and people wanting to work with you well you know i've seen a lot of directors and know a lot of directors and some of my friends that are finding it really really hard to find their next film and they're good directors so it always feels achingly insecure always um the the film industry and tv industry and and um you know and you can feel that all the time and uh especially i think you know being a director i think a, a lot falls on a director so you know if something doesn't work you know you you do take up a lot of the sort of blame for it so you know you never i think completely and i never feel like something's successful i i I, I don't know how you sort of, you know, maybe apart from it commercially, although, you know, one of my most successful films was Assassin's Creed in regards to, to, to box office yet critically, it, you know, it was really kind of, um, you know, I got a, a huge amount of negative kind of reviews for it. So it's really hard to judge kind of what, what's successful and what works and what doesn't and what you're going to, and whether what you're going to do next is going to get you your next job. So it's um yeah I uh, unfortunately I still feel as insecure as I did the first time I made um, Snowtown my first film. So so how do you deal with that? Like what what are some things that you do to to push you through those tough times when you do get those those bad reviews or things are aren't looking as up as they were you know on the last project? Well, the funny thing, the only thing that gets you through is that you it does sort of cut out all the crap and ego, and you actually realize that you know what why you're in it is because of the work so what happens is you pick up a book and you start reading and you become completely involved in that and you start working on another project and with another writer and and you, you and the work becomes the thing you know it, it it's not you, you're doing it because you love it that you're not doing it because of money or anything else you're doing it because you can't not do it so that starts to remind you why you why you love it and why you sacrifice and why you 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 got into it in the first place so i've I've always found that whenever i'm sort of down or not or, or doubting myself or whatever or just thinking too much about myself and that as soon as you start getting involved in the work again you know starting to think about characters starting to think about stories starting to think about something as a film you you always well i always find that i sort of suddenly lose myself you know the fear of it all sort of starts to subside a bit and you start to get really kind of pumped by um the creative process again, which is actually the goal. That's why you do it. And that's what keeps you going. As you keep leveraging projects to bigger and bigger casts and bigger budgets, is your approach changing? And if, for example, did you, did you approach, you know, Russell Crowe differently than you did George McKay? Did you feel, do you feel like, um, you're adjusting to different scales and hierarchies of projects um, as you evolve as a director. Yeah, I think I think every actor is different and is is at a different stage of their career, and I think it's up to you to kind of work out where you fit within that. You know, I think you know meeting George McKay, who kind of runs off a tube, you know, running late to an audition, runs in sweaty. I'm auditioning and he's got 10 minutes is really different from, you know, obviously going to meet Russell at his house and spending, you know, a day and a night talking about the project. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very different hat. So I've always want, just wanted the actors to feel comfortable and open with me, no matter who they are and be able to kind of come up with ideas. Usually the actors have the best ideas and they always, always uh, are, are sort of thinking. And, you know, most of the time they've got 10 times more experience than you. 
<laughs> you know, like I've only done four films and, you know, you walk on a set with someone like Russell Crowe and you look at the kind of the unbelievable experience that he's had on numerous projects um, and you, 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 you kind of go, you know, this guy knows a shitload more about filmmaking than I do. I think you have to be quite humble and quite, uh, have your ears and eyes open a lot when you're working with those sort of actors because they're always going to give you some, some amazing stuff and it's up to your job to inspire them to do that, you know, to be really solid and, 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 and strong about, you know, why you're making the film and what the vision is and come up with ideas and thoughts too for them that, that might kind of spark them into to, to giving you the gold dust, you know. Like working with Russell Crowe, if you're not happy with something that he's doing, like are you able to to give him that note or do you have to like, like how do you manage that? Or is it all just gold and, and you don't even have that problem? I don't think you ever go up to Russell and go, that was shit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think, I don't think you'd ever, you know, and I've never ever done that with any actor, you know, nor, nor should you because nothing is shit, you know, nothing, nothing is, nothing is shit. It's all, it's all good and it's all different. And sometimes things don't work, but you know, you don't want anyone to freeze up because you're, you're going, oh, like the, like you know, so many times I've thought this is the way a scene should go and this is the way it should be played, and then an actor does something that completely is not that what you've thought, but is kind of different and better. And the number of times where my first gut response is that is wrong has really shifted when I suddenly see it in the edit, and I go, wow, that's just different, and I would never have expected that, and it works. It's just work, and it actually what makes the scene really unique and unexpected and original. Um, so I'm always sort of looking, looking and sort of hearing, you know, things out. But no, with Russell, you just, you know, he, he's really aware of what he's doing as well. You don't need to like, you'll come in and go, oh, you know, I, I didn't quite kind of get that or whatever. And, you know, he, he always look at you too and go, have you got what you want? You know, and that, that's, that's an incredible, that's an incredible thing to say to a director, you know? It's an incredibly open, beautiful thing to kind of say. And, and, and that actually allows you to go, you know what, I'd like to try one more like this. Or, and I'll always flip things. I'll always, like, if I do feel like I've got something, I'll always go in and just, for the hell of it, let's flip it. And, yeah, this scene's kind of sad and dark. And, you know, your response is that, well, what happens if you make a joke within that scene? What happens if you come in... And you actually kind of have an energy that's lighter. I don't know, like, like always do something that that you just wouldn't normally do that inspires the actor to, um, you know, free them up to just try something different. And and sometimes those 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 takes are always really great because the actor just relaxes and um, you know trusts and does something that they didn't expect they'd do. I work with my partner and he's an actor and I always find that um, I'm more frank with him and more transparent with him than I am with any other actor and I wanted to hear about what it's like uh, for you and your wife. I think that's right. I think that I can say things to Essie that I probably wouldn't say to another actor <laughs> and she can definitely kind of say things to me that she wouldn't say to another director. There's been so many celebrated partnerships that, you know, that, that have born amazing stuff from from husband and wife teams or partner teams you know so you know and i think that probably comes from the fact that you you just have a you know you just you, you just know you just know and and you just cut between all the kind of politeness and kind of you know the the, the wall there and you just go sort of straight for it but having said that though you know i, I was really aware too that 
I was on, you know, Essie was on set with a whole bunch of other actors that I had a particular, that, you know, it would be so easy for me to say, you know, that's shit Essie, you know, and, and I'd get away <laughs> with it. And, and Essie would know yeah, how, yeah. I, why I would have said that and she'd come back at me. But you don't kind of want that to happen around other actors, you know. You want you want there to be an equality that's sort of going on, that, and a, and a, and a respect that even though she's my wife, that 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 you know she's being treated in the exact same way as 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 the others. Um, so we we tried to do that a lot with with Kelly, and 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 it, and it was a good thing because most of the time you've got the other actor right next to next to her and you want make sure that they're involved as opposed to some clicky thing that's happening between you know Essie and I and and her performance in this film is like incredible and the role that she took on is very challenging and and a tough tough role to pull off I think and uh I was just wondering like was it really challenging to direct her in that kind of role or was it just just another another role no I knew it was gonna like I always knew that I wanted her be in it um and i knew it was going to be physically really demanding for her and and you know it's terrible watching your you know (laughs) wife get hit and you know it's like i mean you know the scene that i thought i would be so okay with and i was okay with it but i did sort of start to kind of go this is absurd was it was when i had to direct essie giving fellatio to charlie hunnam that was like first day (laughs) right right you know, when Essie gets down on her knees and we kind of strap a dildo on Charlie and you're sort of rolling up and, you know, suddenly everyone sort of leaves the set and you're sort of shooting and you, you are watching, you know, yeah, it's a character, but it's your wife kind of, you know, in a, in a, in a sexual kind of act with this, you know, this beautiful man that's just arrived on set from America. I mean, that, that, there, there is a moment there where you, you're kind of going, God, this is absurd. You know, it is, it is interesting how quickly you, you disappear into character and you, you, you're so involved, like suddenly she's just so become Ellen that, that um, you know, it does sort of drop away. But I, I do remember kind of going, oh, this is a little stranger than what I thought it was going to be. Charlie in specific, like, did you have any time to, to, to work or uh, rehearse with any of the actors before, like, doing a scene like that? Or was it, like, literally, like, he just arrived the day before and then you meet him on set and you have to direct that scene? You know, it, it's really different, you know, with each actor. Like, like with Russell, it was, you know, a lot of talking, a lot of going through the script. Very little kind of rehearsal, you know. A, a lot of that was sort of done on, on set. Charlie was the same. Whereas the boys, the gang, there was two weeks of rehearsal, three weeks of rehearsal, and I actually got them to join a band. Like they, they I, I booked them into a gig and, you know, to 350 people and sort of on the first day of rehearsal said, right, in three weeks' time you're playing at a gig to 350 people at a really amazing kind of bar in um, Melbourne and uh, under, under a name, you know, and, and you've got to come up with a set. And, you know, half of them didn't play musical instruments and... So they they did they they kind of came up with this incredible kind of set and two songs made into film and they arrived and played to three hundred people and they played eight nine songs and everyone thought that they were this new band and then the next day they arrived on set and they were the Kelly Gang you know they were you, you could just tell that the process of being in a band of creating music is like nothing you know it it bonds you and 
gets you close in a very, very quick way. So that was a completely different sort of process to like working with 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 Russell and 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 Essie. Um, so it it all depends really. It depends on what the character wants as well. If if the main energy is okay, these gang of boys. Well, then that's the energy that you bring to their rehearsal preparation. Like, what is that? Well, that's. I want these guys just to look like they know each other. Yeah, it's it, it varies. It varies a lot. I'm obsessed with that. I wish I went to that gig. I wish I was in Australia to go to that rock show. We have a lot of first-time directors or aspiring filmmakers who listen to this podcast. And so the question is, like, after you finished your first independent feature, do you have any advice for, like, a director in that position when their their first feature is done, they're ready to go after their second feature? Like, what should a filmmaker be doing in that position? Look, it's really tough because I genuinely think your first film needs to be like a first album. Like, I think it needs, like, I think you need to do everything possible to make it distinct and you, you know, and, and, and push it. Like, like just push and push and push the, the, the choices because you'll never get to do it again. You'll never ever get to get do, do a, a first film again and you'll never get to be that brave again. You know, it, it's, um, suddenly it becomes much more complicated. Coming off that, you know, to then think about what you're going to do second, especially if you've had a bit of success, I think you can stew too much in that success and stew too much in kind of like, oh, okay, what am I going to do? And and I, my biggest recommendation would be to follow it up really quickly with something, you know, break that kind of sophomore kind of, you know, dreaded second film type thing and just try to get onto the next one really quickly and not be too precious about it not think too much about it about sort of the success of the one that's come before or what you've done because that will you'll never be able to repeat that just just get on and 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 keep going because you know you'll just learn and 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 that will then you know go to the next thing but you know and i got into it a little bit you start to worry too much about what that second thing should be and and i spent two years sort of trying to find something saying no to a lot of things and you know was on something and then it fell over and then Macbeth happened really quickly it was like and I never wanted to do it you know I never wanted to do a film production of Macbeth it was just a weird synchronicity (laughs) of like Michael and Macbeth and this is ready to go and okay off you go and and it was really spontaneous and it was actually the best thing that I did and and wish I'd done something before that had something ready to go after the first one because you get you get caught up you know you'd start traveling festivals and you're suddenly in a sort of time zone of interviews and you sort of lose the fact that you should be thinking about the next one and that that you shouldn't be kind of stewing in the first so no no that that would be my my only advice is don't be so precious and just go for it and get on to the next one yeah, that's awesome. Well, we like to end the show with, similar to how we start the show, with a little bit of a rapid-fire question answers. We have five quick questions to ask you, and then I swear you'll be free, Justin. What's the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? It could be a short, could be a micro-short, whatever it is. Uh, it was Meeting Misty Rain, a little short film I did for a festival here called Trop Fest with Essie in it. So the first ever short film I did was with, with Essie. And how do I feel about it now? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a little embarrassing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, I was trying things out and, and I did it on black and white. It was a black and white film. And I remember just how expensive it was and to get the film developed and I just put far too much money into it. And yeah, but it was, it was great. I just remember being on set and just kind of going, ah, oh, I want to do this. 
I want to do more of these. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I asked Steven Soderbergh once why he makes so many films. You know, it was around that sort of time, you know, where he sort of, I think he made Traffic and Aaron Brockovich in the same year. Like he was sort of overlapping. His whole thing was you've just got to keep moving. You just got to keep moving. And as soon as I sort of stop, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to drown. So, you know, I need to keep, keep moving, keep doing things. And Michael Whittenbottom was the same. You know, I, I asked the same sort of question to him and, and it was don't sort of fall into the retrospect. Keep going. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Uh, just trying to get the next one up. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't worry so much. You know, don't worry. Don't just, just be yourself and trust that what you've got will, you know, and your ideas and your thoughts will kind of, will be enough. You know, don't worry so much about all the other kind of noise around being a director. Finally, is making movies hard? Yes, but it's unlike anything else. It's the most extreme experience because you're a group of people that come together for one like pounding moment of time. It's, it's a very strange job. Like you all become a family on something that, you know, it doesn't last for very long and you create bonds that are like deeper than you could ever think. And then suddenly you sort of depart and you don't see each other. So it's an incredibly strange sort of job to do, but it's unbelievably rewarding in, in, in those kind of relationships that you forge in, in, in very quick periods of time um, that you can never sustain. So like, just be so loving of when you're doing it. You know, because even though it's hard and even though it's most of the time you're sitting there just stressed out of your mind, it, it is a kind of hyper real place to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people working on something that you love doing and, you know, knowing that it's only going to last in this small bubble. So make, make sure you enjoy the actual doing of it. Ah, excellent. Wow. Yeah. Last question. Uh, do you have Twitter? Are you on social media of any kind? Like, do you have a website? Where should people go to check you out? I have nothing. I, 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 yeah, I've debated whether. I, yeah, I have nothing. I don't. I don't have much to say really. And uh, if you want to check me out, uh, check out the film. Like, I, I, it's yeah. um, you know, it's a really crazy time at the moment. And you know, we we were going to be in the cinemas, but you know, and now we're you know streaming, and they're the new sort of home cinemas at the moment. So you know, please go out and and see this. I think it's going to be a real real ride. It's you know, I, I I think westerns are so synonymous to to America, and it's definitely a western this, but with a real twist. So um, yeah, hope you hope you go out and 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 watch it and find it, and um, yeah. But no, I don't. I'm not interesting enough to have a Twitter account. <laughs> well, well, congratulations on the film, Justin. I mean, it it was quite something. I really enjoyed it a lot, and um, you know, I definitely think even if you can't see it in a theater. Watch it in the, on the biggest screen you can with the best headphones or the best surround system that you have because it is quite an experience. And I really love the uh, the sound design and the music and the whole, like you talk about point of view and perspective a lot. And yeah, you, you nailed it, man. It was awesome. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Justin Krizel, Judy Merrick, and everyone at Katrina Wan PR and IFC for making this interview happen. The movie is out now. Uh, you can uh, find it on all VOD platforms. Um, and actually, I, it might still be in drive-ins. Like, it did a thing where 
they had the Wretched and uh, True History of Kelly Gang play in a double feature back to back at uh, a number of drive-ins across the country. So it's kind of cool that like, you know, two movies that we had the directors on are, are playing together at drive-ins right now. So I don't know if that's still happening. I knew it started on the, um, the first and hopefully it's still happening uh, when you hear this. So if you do see that, go check it out. But just watch it on VOD if that, that's your only option. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to things we talked about in this episode. If you want to uh, send us an email, uh, tell us what we're doing great, tell us what we're doing wrong, give us a topic suggestion, whatever you want, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at podcast. I am RFB on Twitter and Instagram, and Liz, where can you be found? At Liz Manischel on Twitter mainly and Facebook. And please, if you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, as we said earlier, you can give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the other places. That's always great. And finally, thanks to our producers Greg Holdsman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Allison Stoney, and the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks to Justin Krizel, Judy Merrick, and everyone at Katrina One PR. Oh, I should go back. Is it Katrina <laughs> so, or Katrina? Katrina? Is it Katrina? I thought it was Katrina. Katrina? Did I say Katrina or Katrina? You said Katrina. You didn't say Katrina. <laughs> you oh, okay. said something else. I don't know what okay. you said. Okay. Well, let me say it again. <laughs> thanks for listening, and thanks to Justin Krizel, Judy America, and... Judy America. Oh, God. Uh... <laughs>